собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is the first of five events for Nature's Revenge, Ecology, Animals, and Waste in Eurasia, the Spring 2021 Speaker Series at the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. To see the entire schedule for the series, go to www.ucis.pit.edu slash crease, that's C-R-E-E-S. The desiccation of the Aral Sea is one of the greatest environmental catastrophes of the late 20th century. But efforts to harness and divert the Aral's fresh water are rooted in efforts to use technology to terraform the landscape in the modern era. Using water to irrigate a wasteland was a hallmark of modernity, progress, productivity, and prosperity. Water was also emblematic of the colonial infrastructure of Russia and the Soviet Union. Here's Maya Peterson and Christopher Ward to discuss the role of water in the wider environmental history of the Soviet project. Maya Peterson is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Her research and teaching interests include Russian and Central Asian history, as well as the history of the environment, science, technology, and medicine. She's the author of Pipe Dreams, Water and Empire in Central Asia's Aral Sea Basin, published by Cambridge University Press. Christopher Ward is a professor of history at Clayton State University. He's the author of a number of publications, most notably Brezhnev's Folly, The Building of BAM and Late Soviet Socialism, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press, and co-author of Russia, a historical introduction from Kiev and Rus to the present, published by Westview Press. Here is Maya Peterson and Christopher Ward. So, uh, Maya and Chris, um, I thought I, I'd, we'd start by just having you briefly introduce the focus of your research so we, we can all here start on the same page of where you're coming from. So, Maya, if you'd like to start. Sure. So I'm interested in uh, global water issues. And in particular, uh, my research has focused on the um, Aral Sea Basin in Central Asia. And uh, I was particularly interested in um, water issues there, mostly irrigation uh, for cotton agriculture. And in my book, Pipe Dreams, that uh, Sean just mentioned, I look at water management in Central Asia as a really central aspect of both Russian czarist and then later Soviet visions for the transformation 
of Central Asia uh, into a productive colony of the empire. So the transformation of landscapes and livelihoods um, through these large-scale irrigation projects. And overall, the book is really in many ways an attempt to look at the history of the disappearance of the Aral Sea, which is uh, generally talked about as one of the worst environmental disasters of the late 20th century, um, in a much kind of longer uh, time frame. So by taking this late 20th century environmental disaster story back to the 19th century um, and the Russian conquest of Central Asia in the late 19th century, I want to put this story of environmental disaster, this tragedy, it's often told as a, a Soviet story, as a story of uh, communist gigantomania, um, disregard for the natural environment. I want to put this in a much more kind of global context. Um, I want to look at these kinds of large-scale water management projects as um, part of a larger transnational story. Um, again, by going back to the late 19th century and the kinds of impulses and visions to transform arid lands, uh, what were considered basically barren wastelands into uh, agricultural paradises. And this is something starting in the late 19th century that I call the irrigation age in the book. So I'll be happy to talk more about that in our conversation today. I actually have a question about the title. Um, because, because I think titles are important because they say something and your title, I think is saying something. It has a double meaning, right? On the one hand, it's pipe dreams in the sense of laying pipes to irrigate land, but in the colloquial kind of sense, pipe dreams as, as, as something that's complete folly. Uh, can you talk about like how you, that, where that title came from? And, and if you're thinking along those lines. Oh, titles are not my forte, but thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think because I actually, I stop my story. I mean, my research, my original research stops um, around World War II. And the story of the Aral Sea, the di major diversion projects and dam building that led to the drying up of the sea, um, really, that process really starts in the 1950s and, and 1960s, and, and that's when it really starts to become visible. So I actually stop the story almost before it begins. Uh, so a lot of the projects I look at are, are really just kind of fantasies. They are just visions. They are um, dismissed as, as kind of as crazy, but they lay the groundwork for and they inform the later visions um, that lead to the disappearance of the Aral Sea. And really, I mean, if you go back to the 19th century, people are already talking about the Aral Sea disappearing. Um, and, and that's okay. And so, you know, the question of what kind of value we place on a body of water like the Aral Sea, you know, and, and how we come to conceptualize um, water as a resource versus all of the other kinds of ways in which we might want to use water and, and the aesthetic beauty of a, a, an enormous lake in the desert. Um, these are all kinds of, of questions that I think, I think this idea of dreams and visions um, is, it, it is about the folly um, and it is about the kind of the incomplete nature of, of many of the projects that I look at, that these are just kind of, you know, they're, they're not realizable in practice. Um, but, but the dreams and the visions are also anchored in this, what I call the irrigation age, this idea. A lot of it is kind of really romantic, looking backwards at great civilizations that have flourished in deserts in the past. This is not just in Central Asia. This is in North Africa. This is in the American West. Um, you know, and, and these, these engineers who come with these visions of, 
of then kind of recreating past lost glories in the deserts by bringing water to these regions. Yeah, as, a, as someone who grew up in Los Angeles, I can certainly relate. Well, the mention of folly, of course, is an excellent segue to you, Christopher, since, uh, you know, your first book is uh, a f about also, uh, to some extent, folly. Um, so what are you, you know, talk about what you're doing now in terms of an environment. Yeah, thanks, Sean. I appreciate the introduction. And it's nice to see so many um, familiar faces. Um, these days, I'm working on what I hope to be uh, a book project at some point that's going to be an environmental history of the Lake Baikal biome. And what I'm doing right now is trying to look at uh, specific species that are endemic to the Lake Baikal area. And the first kind of initial foray into this is an exploration of the Baikal Omur, uh, a freshwater whitefish that is endemic uh, to Lake Baikal. It's, uh, I think I can probably say without too much exaggeration, the most famous fish uh, in the entire area, if not in all of Russia today. And it has a very long history, uh, obviously as a species, but in terms of human interaction and concern with the species, I was a little surprised to find that it dated back to the 18th century. And I'm hoping to kind of look at that story over a long durée perspective and argue that this particular species, as it goes or doesn't do well, as the case may be, can give us some indication on the history and environmental importance of Lake Baikal. And I'm sure I'm telling uh, very few of you something new, but Lake Baikal has a particular resonance with Russians uh, and many people around the world, but particularly in Russia. One thing I was struck by even before um, I went to the Lake Baikal region was how many people when I spoke about my interest in Lake Baikal gave me a story, some kind of anecdote as Russians are one to do, maybe not about their own experience with the lake, but about something that they had heard about the lake or legends about the lake or its particular microclimate, which is particularly interesting. Um, just to give you a little personal anecdote, and some of you may have experienced this as well. I, I think this is still true. It's, it was possible the last time I was in Russia anyway to buy Lake Baikal uh, water. Uh, it's actually uh, bottled uh, from a pipe that is placed uh, deep in the lake. And the advertising pitch is that the water is not uh, altered in any way. There's no addition of any kind of uh, salt or flavor additives or anything. It's pure Baikal water. And I feel that is just really fascinating. I think here in the United States anyway, if someone sold uh, water from one of the Great Lakes, even if it was at a great depth, uh, you wouldn't want to have any part of it. And yet this water from what I could tell is sold pretty well. So anyway, I'm interested in the history of this fish. And then um, another very uh, famous species in the lake is this nirpa, which is this uh, freshwater seal uh, that also is endemic to the lake. And I want to use those two species and perhaps a few more to look at a history of the lake, particularly in my focuses, as some of you may know, in the Soviet period. But uh, I really want to try to branch out. And I realize others have written a little bit about Lake Baikal and historical memory, particularly in the Tsarist period. Uh, but I think this can be expanded to, to modern day. Um, President Putin, for example, among his many so-called interests, has one uh, in the Omul. Uh, and uh, there was a video a few years ago of him uh, in a course PR staged uh, affair, uh, dropping uh, a fry of this fish uh, into the lake. And it, get, it really piqued my curiosity about why is this lake, which is incredibly important to the region, but frankly, for most Russians and people of the world, far away, at least in their, in their personal experience, uh, so, so very important. And how can that tell us some stories about how we perceive the environment uh, broadly defined? 
And then just one other thing I'm interested in, this is something that goes back to my first book, as you were mentioning, Sean, is the intersection, uh, particularly in this region of Eastern Siberia and the Russian Far East, today and in the Soviet period between Russia and Japan. I've always been fascinated with this interaction and I was surprised in my trips to Siberia to see how much discussion and talk there was of Japan. And I think Japan can serve as an instructive example of how Russians perceive their own environment. Uh, in many ways, a, a negative example. Uh, Japan's ecosystem has been very damaged by its crash industrialization. Of course, Russia's or Soviet Union's experience is the same, but they both have a deep connection to water. Uh, water is particularly important in Japan as well, uh, being an island surrounded by water, but much of which, of course, is non-potable and unpotable these days uh, and has to be cleaned and processed a lot before it comes out to the tap, is a really fascinating story. So that's kind of where I'm headed in terms of future research. You know, Chris, uh, you started, you know, like we said, your first book was on the construction of the, the, the railway. Um, and what drew you into, what got you interested in environmental history uh, and particular uh, water. Well, as you mentioned, my first book, the research into that, I kept seeing more and more discussions of environmental policies. And I was really struck by, of course, I'm not the only one to write about this, this appropriation of environmental consciousness and uh, defense of nature, protection of nature, whatever word you like to use, by the Russian, uh, I should say, the Soviet government. And although that's really only a chapter in my, my first book, I, wanna, I wanted to explore that. And of course, water uh, is all throughout the, the, the area that this railway that I studied, this Baikalamor mainline goes through, of course, Lake Baikal naturally, and of course, that more river as well. And I felt like water was one of the most overarching uh, impacted areas and most important discussions within the Soviet bureaucracy and within uh, the information I could read about unofficial, excuse me, official unofficial uh, actors, uh, people working within, uh, many of you know about VOOP and other such organizations, of course, under the aegis of the state. But it seemed like water was of primary concern. Obviously, there are many other things that this railway impacted in terms of ecological and environmental uh, damage or impact or both. But water seemed to me to be the kind of tying together. And of course, it's so absolutely fundamental to our, exist our existence as a species and all of the earth. I felt like this was an area that I could really uh, do a lot more uh, digging into. And for you, Maya, I mean, your, your you know, research not only takes you to a kind of remote part of our world uh, in our imaginations, but also in several countries in that world and looking at the research that you've done, what, what got you interested in this subject? Well, I like the way Chris talked about how when he went to Baikal, everybody had these stories that were somehow connected to Baikal, because I think we all have different kinds of water stories in our lives. And we may not think about them that way, and we may not be that conscious of them. Um, but, you know, there are bodies of water all around us that have these histories um, that I think have probably impacted our lives in some way. And I, I didn't really think about this until graduate school, you know, the fact that you could study the history of water. Um, but, you know, at some point, I kind of realized, oh, I've always been interested in this. And so for me, it was really uh, growing up in New England, in a town on a river. Um, I didn't feel connected to that river. That river was was really just something you crossed, like when you went to the mall. Um, so I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. But there were times in school when the river came up. Uh, so, you know, one year we had to do a project on a canal that had been built in the late 18th century uh, at these dangerous rapids. And the canal enabled uh, 
boats that were going up the river to, to get around this dangerous section of the river. Before that, they would have had to portage. So the river had been used for trade and for transportation. Uh, and then later on, a hydroelectric dam was built at that same site. So now the river is used for power locally. Um, and, and the area has really been industrialized in a lot of ways, as so many rivers have been in the United States. So there are sort of these, you know, conflicting uh, uses of the river and these kinds of power dynamics um, come up a lot when we start looking at water. So sort of who gets to decide how water resources are used, where they're used. And of course, we can say, well, we'd like to you know, restore this area. Um, that's something in California, you know, people talk about Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, which um, provides water to the city of San Francisco. People today still talk about restoring that beautiful place. But, you know, then where does the water for San Francisco come from? Um, it has to come from somewhere. So does it make sense to truck it in from farther away? Is that environmentally sustainable? Um, so kind of all these these questions about water, I, I realized had kind of always been there in my life. And I never really thought about them until I went to graduate school. I learned you could do this thing called environmental history, which is, you know, at its most basic just taking the, the physical environment um, seriously when you're taking when you're when you're writing history um, just you know all of these things got me thinking I had recently learned about the disappearance of the RLC um, and and I was interested in Soviet history in Central Asia and so I just thought well you know water is clearly important in Central Asia so maybe I can start looking for for you know how to tell these stories and it turns out it's kind of hard to look for water in the archives um, but that's a that's <laughs> A different issue. Yeah, I, I actually that that does bring up a good question because you know uh, those of us who who are our historical work deals with human beings. Um, you know, you can find the voice of humans. You you can see what they wrote, but the 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 environment is is mediated right through those who can speak and those who can write. Um, so this this brings me to the question of, you know, Maya, you started your research looking at the 19th century. And already in the 19th century, there's this imagination of irrigating Central Asia uh, and these massive projects of, of water management. H how do you get, you know, talk about how the relationship between how humans at the time in, in the Russian Empire conceptualize nature uh, and its ab and human ability to transform it. And, and how do you, you know, get that? How does that, ref, how is that reflected in your source material? Yeah, interesting question. I think, I mean, in terms of the way in which people were thinking about nature, I, I situate uh, the Russian Empire very much within um, a, a broader world of European empires um, that were, you know, were people really already starting in, in the 18th century, even before, but I would say really, you know, the 18th and 19th centuries in Europe, and then by extension through European imperialism, people around the world um, really had these ideas about improvement of land, uh, which meant making land uh, into agricultural land. So, so land that, you know, was, was forest or was marsh or was um, kind of desert, uh, that this was not a, a very useful um, way to, to use the land, that the best use of land was, was for agriculture. And so this idea of improving land, of making it fertile, of making it 
bear fruit um, was was one that was uh, shared, I think, by by Russians uh, alongside Europeans and and Americans uh, and imperialists all over the world. Uh, progress ideas about progress were also very much about you know this kind of of idea this idea of conquering nature of um, of taking aspects of of nature that were perhaps less um, uh, suitable for for human habitation um, that you know the kinds of obstacles that nature put in in uh, the human path as as they they visualized it you know humans were really outside of nature and could dominate nature and could control it could manage it um, and in the case of of Central Asia I think that um, you know this this ability to control the environment, this ability to make it more productive, um, you know, was not only useful for the Russian government. So in the the late nineteenth century, uh, there was a big famine in uh, the central. Black Earth regions of Russia in 1891-1892, there was a lot of pressure on the land and the Russian government was really looking for places to resettle people. Um, And Central Asia, with its warm climate, seemed to to be kind of ideal for settlement. And these large areas that appeared to be open, um, some of it was because they were desert (laughs) and it was very hard to make a living there. Others were steppe areas where nomadic peoples lived uh, and again nomadic peoples were seen as as not using land properly because they grazed their herds over these huge areas and when officials looked at these places they saw lots of farm plots right you could divide up these huge areas and this is again not just russia so you know i living in the american west i'm i'm struck all the time by how many parallels there are and so the u.s government did the exact same thing with the west it's you know as unsustainable (laughs) as what the russians were trying to do in central asia there are these huge areas that are open because it's just really hard to make a living there Um, but they imagined these these plots for yeoman farmers and they imagined resettling people if you could just bring water to the land um and so but you had asked about sources so i guess um you know some of my chapters are actually case studies that come from um from the archives from uh projects that i discovered and and people that i discovered in the archives um, because yes it is in many ways it's difficult to look for the environment um i I wish that i could have done more with non-human actors but um i just didn't really feel like i had the kinds of sources that could tell those stories I, i do try to get some of that in there and i think some of the failures um, of, of Russians in this arid region. Um, I have these engineers who are, are coming from a place where there's actually too much water. So a, a lot of Russia has the problems of Northern Europe, which is if you're familiar with Northern Europe, you know, you have to drain marshes and swamps. You have to create dikes to hold back the sea. <laughs> um, so St. Petersburg was a, a city that was created in from the marshes that was, you know, reclaimed land. Um, and they're going to a very arid region where the problems are completely different. And the same thing happens in the United States. You know, people are coming from the east where there's too much water to a place where there's no water. And they don't really know what they're doing. Um, but they have these ideas about you know, trying to transform and, and control nature and and legitimacy in, in both their places really hangs on the ability of, of the government to prove that it can can do these kinds of things. Um, so so water definitely is unruly <laughs> in my story. You know, it 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 
you can't just add water to to land and grow crops. It's not that easy. So um, there there are ways in which the kind of nature fights back, right? Nature's revenge is the, the topic of your series. Um, and so that does come up with, you know, in the frustrations of the engineers, for instance, in their writings, but you have to look yeah. for it. And um, and there was a lot that I couldn't do that I would have liked to well, do. Let's bring Chris in here. Chris, in, in, in a similar question, but is there, in, in since you work on the late Soviet period, is there a particular Soviet inflection of this relationship to nature? Because we, you know, I'll just speak for myself, like my assumption, not hardly knowing anything about the environmental history of, say, the Soviet Union, you know, my impression is this very Promethean attitude towards nature where you can just kind of transform it and work it like clay. Um, In the late Soviet period, is there a a particular Soviet attitude towards the nature that nature that's different than, say, what we see in the 19th century in a variety of places around the world? Yeah, well, I could use the example of Baikal again. There's a real tension, even just official discourse about the lake. On the, on the one hand, it's the source of almost unlimited water, and we, the Soviet government and the people of the Soviet Union, should use this resource to its utmost. Um, as many of you know, there was a paper mill built on the banks of the lake that's still there um, that uh, was used pre- precisely for that reason. Paper needs a lot of water to be made, incredible amounts, and it's very polluting. On the other hand, there was this resonance of this pristine area that we should preserve. And one of the questions I kept wondering was, don't these people realize this is the exact same place? Uh, We're talking about this unlimited source of water to make unlimited paper to fulfill the five-year plan. And yet we want people to be able to drink out of the lake directly. By the way, that's something I actually did. I drank out of the lake. It was not my idea. My host kind of said, you need to absorb the spirit of the lake. The the Buryats who live here have done this. And I found that an interesting comment because the Buryats, especially in the late Soviet period, there's discussion of them uh, as they're being basically forced into relegation and not physically removed as much as say the Trail of Tears in my part of the country at one point, but simply told, look, you're, you're going along with this, uh, your native traditions, we're going to dispense with them, except for the ones that we like, except for the ones that fit into our, our narrative. But yes, there's this real disconnect. And in fact, I, I think I probably should use the word confusion over what to do. Uh, the messages from Moscow tend to be mixed. There's this Promethean message that you mentioned, Sean, of maximum exploitation. We're going to make this uh, lake by call into the, the Virgin Lake, I guess, if you want to use the Virgin Lands analogy, although it's probably not the best one. On the other hand, we want to develop tourism. Uh, Speaking of Japan, there were Japanese tourists even in the 1970s after this rapprochement between Japan and the Soviet Union after the uh, Treaty of Peace and Friendship was signed, uh, started to visit the lake. And they realized, wait a minute, these people have money and they're not here to see paper mills. They're here to see beauty. And if you've been to Baikal, it's absolutely exceptionally beautiful. It's uh, hyperbole aside, one of the most amazing places I've ever seen, even though I've been prepared. And so what to do with this place, uh, to, to wring every kopeck uh, out of it economically and to exploit it to the full and leave it behind in waste or uh, risk the consequences, which there were many of, because one of the most, I would argue, nascent environmental movements of the entire latter part of the Soviet period in the Soviet Union was over Baikal. Going back to this myth of Baikal, when people found out who didn't live in the area, what the government was doing with it, they were outraged. Uh, and so th- there's a problem. And I think there's really, again, to, to verge on uh, um, some uh, over-exaggeration, a bit of um, uh, over-exaggeration, I guess the word I could consider is um, being schizophrenic about it. We want to take everything, but we want to leave it in its place. And we want to make money doing both. 
and then the capitalist motive really when I first started looking to this it should have not surprised me uh, but it did but as we all know there was money to be made the Soviet Union was at one time the world's leading oil exporter and they understood even back then that water was the commodity of the future that's one of the themes of our talk today uh, unstated so far is that water of course is the first and only in my opinion ir completely irreplaceable resource and by call is an example of how we cannot do it both ways but we're going to try and that is one of the great failures of the Soviet experiment is this inability to uh, reconcile these two competing tendencies. Um, I, I wanted to get into this, I, you know, from both of what, what you've been saying, I mean, Chris, you've spoken about this, this myth of Baikal and the selling of the water. And it, of course, reminded me of the sale of holy water from the Sea of Galilee, <laughs> right? Um, it, you know, has this mythical, mystic quality. And, and in Maya too, like in, in your area, people are dreaming of transforming the land. There's a lot of this kind of imaginary mysticism uh, in, involved in it. Um, but nonetheless, as both of you said, people live there. Right. You have the nomads of Central Asia, um, you know, some much like our Native Americans in the United States who were seen as not using the land to its full potential. Uh, you have Buryats in around Lake Baikal and the residents there. Talk about uh, more about the, the relationship of the people from those regions to, say, water or and the surrounding environment. Uh, Maya? When thinking about the Aral Sea, uh, one of the things that comes to mind is that the area around the Aral Sea is inhabited by the Karakalpak people. So uh, there's a, a Karakalpak ethnic uh, minority region within the Republic of Uzbekistan today. This is a remnant of the Soviet Union, um, but the Karakalpak language is actually closer to Kazakh than, um, than Uzbek. And uh, for you know, many, many years, they made a living from fishing, uh, many of them fishing and, and farming. Uh, you know, initially, they had been um, semi-nomadic, I believe. Uh, but in more recent years, in, in Soviet years, you know, many of them were, were fishermen. And with the, as the sea retreated, um, which was uh, a result of these dreams of irrigating the desert, so as I mentioned, really, um, you know, starting in the 1950s with uh, the construction of the Karakum Canal, uh, diverting water from the Amu Darya through the deserts of Turkmenistan. And then in the 60s and 70s, the creation of, um, of large dams upstream on both the Sir Darya and the Amu Darya. These are the two main rivers that flow through Central Asia from the, the mountainous regions of the eastern part of the region to the Aral Sea in the, the western part of the region. As this water was trapped in reservoirs and as it was diverted into deserts, the sea you know, very quickly started to recede to the point where today, I mean, you can see this on Google Maps, um, really very little of the, the um, surface area of, of the sea is, is covered in water. Most of the, the seabed is exposed. There's a small part that's been preserved, the North Aral Sea on the Kazakh side of the border. Uh, but, you know, as, as the sea receded, people who had made their living from the sea now found themselves in towns that were many, many miles from the sea. And, and many of you are probably familiar with this, um, these photos, these iconic photos of ships rusting in the desert. Um, and as the, the lake receded, you know, not only was there less and less water, uh, but it became 
progressively uh, salinized. And those salts became really concentrated. There was also a lot of agricultural runoff, pesticide. So that area has become, you know, not only was it impossible for the fish to live anymore and then for fishermen to make a living. Um, and so you have these people who are left there thinking, you know, now what do we do? This is our home. We don't want to go anywhere else, but there isn't a very good way to make a living here. Um, you have those those people, and these are people who have been doubly marginalized in the case of the Karakalpaks Kalpaks because they were already this minority group um, in this region, a minority group, especially you know on the Uzbek side of the border, as I said, a, a minority region. So already kind of peripheral to the the government. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know the Republic of Uzbekistan emerged as the Republic for Ethnic Uzbeks, <laughs> and so you have these these people who are a minority within the region, and then they're left in this place that is, you know, uninhabitable in many ways. Uh, at the beginning of 2019, only about half of Karakalpak households had access to clean drinking water. Um, and I think that's something we forget is that so many people in the world today still don't have access, easy access to clean or safe drinking water. Um, myriad health problems from the blowing of toxic sand from the seabed around this region. Um, I think gotten slightly better in recent years. It's hard to get um, good statistics, but I think, you know, it's certainly one that that sounds familiar to many of us who are familiar with other parts of the world, um, with indigenous people or with marginalized people and environmental justice. So with access to um, to especially something like water, um, clean, safe drinking water. So that's kind of the first thing that I think of, but there are many other examples too. <laughs> yeah, well, I can certainly relate to that here in Pittsburgh, <laughs> given given the, the levels of iron in, the, in our water here. Um, uh, Chris, also it's the same, same issue, you know, uh, talk a bit more about the role of, uh, you know, people's relationship to the environment there and the impact that, that uh, you know, the fishing, the overfishing in Baikal and the general environmental damage has had. Right. Well, um, to kind of uh, follow what Maya was saying, um, native indigenous Siberian culture has been uh, in many ways erased from the Baikal region, uh, simply, simply because of demographic reasons. Um, the population of Buryatsi, Yevank, uh, Yakuts, and other populations, and this is a much broader area of Siberia than just Baikal, have not done very well. Um, unfortunately, like uh, the problem with uh, uh, native peoples here in this in, in the United States, um, alcoholism is a particular problem, of course, in Russia, but even more so among indigenous Siberians. And one of the big impacts that I didn't really get a chance to mention yet um, on the Baikal biosphere or uh, bi uh, biome, I should say, um, is logging. Um, speaking of currency, quick and easy money, and this is still going on, a lot of it uh, illegally in some parts of Siberia, uh, lots of logging to produce a very high quality and easily sold uh, timber for a lot of products, uh, paper and other things. Uh, especially recently, of course, um, the rise of China and it's almost um, intractable uh, thirst, if I can use the water analogy, for not just water, which is a whole other thing maybe we could doing in this part of the world to siphon off as much water as it can, uh, but also for paper. Uh, some that China does not have a lot of in terms of raw material that Russia does has very much disproportionately impacted uh, local Siberians. And the impact of Baikal to, to say it's got an important place in the heart of your average Russian is to say even more so that for your average uh, indigenous Siberian, it has even a, a religious connotation. Um, uh, many of these people are originally animists or shamanists, if I'm using appropriate terminology. Uh, and the lake is a source of, of spirits. 
um, of ancestral veneration in some cases. Uh, and as, as I mentioned earlier, to, to drink the water, you actually physically imbibe uh, the spirits, according to some. And it's been an unfortunate dilemma about uh, what to do with these people. I mean, to reference a book where many of us are familiar with, they're in Soviet period, of course, referred to as the small peoples of the North. And that is uh, by definition, although not as much as in English as in, uh, or in Russian as in English, uh, the, the, the uh, making these people a diminutive uh, in a lot of ways uh, relegates them to almost a tourist attraction. And I, I think, unfortunately, in the history of the United States, that is a large part of what the American government has done with Native Americans, uh, taken them off of lands and created national parks and national reserves that are devoid of human uh, inhabitation. And the myth is, of course, in the national parks that these have always been uninhabited when they weren't, uh, that Native Americans lived there and were forced, brutally forced off of them, uh, has happened to a different way, in a different way in Russia. Uh, and these peoples have, uh, frankly, very little voice. Um, there are many people, I think, that at least in my personal experience that I talk to, who would admit that they're Buryat, but that's not their first identification. Uh, Maya mentioned language. Uh, that is a very big problem, the, the loss of languages. Uh, and there are many indigenous Siberian languages that are uh, nearing extinction. So it's a, it's, it's a multiple challenge of environmental degradation, uh, spiritual relegation, and simply demographic disappearance. And what to do about that is a, is a big question. Whether the Russian government really cares about that or selling more fish for people to eat. Uh, this white fish I mentioned is a big time delicacy uh, in all of Russia, but particularly in, in the Baikal region. Uh, people can't get enough of this omur, and it's gone to the point where just recently they had to suspend fishing of the white fish in the lake because people want it so much. And it's highly desirable in other near neighboring countries. It can sell for top dollar, which um, these days isn't quite as important as it once was, but of course, as go oil prices, as goes Russia. Uh, and Russia is always looking, even in the Soviet period, for ways to convert raw materials and natural resources into uh, hard cash. Uh, so native peoples, uh, again, this is not unique to Siberia at all, but have borne the brunt of their government that they have almost no say in, uh, policies that impact their, um, their environment and their life. Chris, to, to what extent is uh, the exploitation of the environment uh, wait, how did I want to put this? To, to, to what extent can we, can we disentangle the exploitation from the environment from the imperial thrust? Or can we? Like, how do you, because my question is coming from a place of like, you know, when I, when I think about empire or imperialism, you know, because my, my focus isn't on the environment, I tend to think of, you know, politics, culture, the transformation of people, civilization, mission, et cetera, et cetera. But the environment is not something that's on my radar. But listening to both of you, you can, I can't even conceptualize empire now without environment. Can you, can you speak to that? I want both of you to speak about it, but Chris, to start with you, talk about that, the role of environment in the imperial thrust. Well, Siberia is the Russian Empire writ large. I mean, it is, again, to use a very easy analogy, that the wild, wild east of you know the contemporary United States at the time, and even earlier, of course. And Siberia, even more so because of its relatively low population relative to the American West, was seen, of course, uh, as this area that was open to exploitation. And I personally, and I, maybe some of the uh, listeners can comment on this later, or Maya as well, but it's very difficult in my mind to disentangle the two, because in my view, imperialism, among many things, is resource extraction, is the use of resources for the benefit of the state. 
uh, whether it be in St. Petersburg or Moscow. And that is certainly an emphasis today. I, I'm not telling anyone here something new, but Siberia has major, major impact into contemporary Russian planning, Russian defense strategy, Russian resource exploitation and sales. Uh, I mentioned tourism earlier. And simply for the fact that this is a reserve of resources that Russia has that other countries that very much wanted, uh, read China here, uh, would very much covet. And another thing about empire is borders. Uh, obviously, that's a very important thing. Where does empire begin and where does another empire uh, start? Uh, and for I think in the Russian mind, again, that's an extremely difficult and perhaps perilous thing to delve into. But um, this is ours and over there is theirs. Uh, I remember going on one of the tours of Baikal. We went up on the area is quite mountainous if you've seen it. Uh, and one of my guides said, look over there. Do you see that valley over there? And I said, yes, yes, I see it. He said, that's Mongolia. As if that was a completely different place than Russia. And of course, Russia and Mongolia have been linked together for a very, very long time in a very unequal partnership. But for me, Siberia is, is the prize of empire for the Russian state. Uh, it is a place where we Russians, it is all ours and it is not theirs. Again, you can read Chinese into this. And again, at the risk of overstating, uh, the relationship between China and the uh, contemporary Russia and the Soviet Union to, to a large degree over Siberia is in my opinion, one of the most contentious of all. Uh, they have a lot of commonalities. A antipathy toward the United States, obviously, is one of them. But Siberia is a place that China, it doesn't want to invade and conquer, but it covets the resources and has, through its soft power, uh, infiltrated in some ways, to use a, a bit of a strong word, uh, uh, using uh, all kinds of means, uh, because those resources, particularly water and wood, I would say those two things, but of course, other things as, rare, as well, rare earth elements, um, other uh, mineable materials, is a thing that empires have competed over. And of course, uh, Russia and China been doing this since at least the 17th century. It's one of the great failures of the Qing dynasty, I think, was its inability to understand where its border with Russia really was and signing an unequal treaty in 1689. But for me, I have trouble uh, kind of differentiating between the two. Empire and resources, empire and regions, for me, are very much linked. I mean, Maya, your I mean, your book is about empire very much. It's one of the main themes. But I'd like you also to elaborate on this question for Central Asia: what role the empire, environment plays in the imperial conquest of the region? Yeah, well, I love your your observation that <laughs> you really can't disentangle empire from environment. And as as Chris said, yes, I mean, you know, one of the ways in which one of the most basic ways in which we think about empires is as having colonies from which they extract uh, resources for the metropole. Um, but, you know, I've also been struck by this through my teaching. I teach a course on the long 19th century, uh, and uh, it's used to be mostly focused on Europe. It's it's now come to include a lot of, of U.S. history as well. And it's about people's kind of changing uh, ideas about nature and, and relationships with their environment over the, the major changes of the 19th century, like industrialization and urbanization. And I always have a week there on empire, but it's so hard to just kind of isolate that because there's empire creeps into everything else, you know, throughout the entire quarter. Um, and so, you know, then I was asked to teach a, a seminar that we have on European environmental history. And I said, well, I'm just making the whole thing about empire, because if we're talking about modern Europe, I mean, sorry about environment, if we're talking about modern Europe, right, and we're talking about empire, we're talking about environmental change all over the world. Um, and so, so yeah, so the story I tell is, is very much a part of that. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the czarist government, you know, really, um, 
by the starting in the 1890s was when this really starts in earnest, but the czarist government really started to promote um, and provide incentives for growing more and more cotton uh, in Central Asia. This was a, a crop that had already been grown locally, um, but what the czarist government did was to, as I said, incentivize um, to, you know, really um, promote uh, cotton cultivation above that of other crops. And because they had failed at irrigating new uh areas by by this point um, a lot of the the already irrigated areas so so areas that uh, central asians themselves had already been irrigating for for centuries if not millennia um, became uh, converted these the this irrigated acreage became converted more and more to cotton um, and there were a number of, of different reasons for this um, one of which was uh, involves the United States that uh, there was a, a lot of concern among Europeans at this time um, and also Japan <laughs> to, to go to Chris's point about how Japan is important in, in this uh, time period in this in these stories too um, by the early 20th century all of these different um, powers around the world were trying to become independent of uh, imports from imports of American cotton. So the Americans had a kind of global monopoly on the cotton market. And uh, so the Russians look at Central Asia because it's a warm place. It's a place where cotton already grows. And this this kind of logic of Central Asia as, as providing cotton for the empire um, continues across the revolution of 1917 into the Soviet period. And in the Soviet period, it has this kind of new uh, ideological valence, this idea of becoming independent from hostile capitalist encirclement, from dependence on, uh, you know, imports from um you know, you don't want Soviet gold going abroad uh, for products that can be produced at home. And so, you know, I think um, people have asked about the, the role that cotton plays in the Soviet economy. And I think it's it's not so much that, you know, it plays this particularly important role, but in the Soviet economy um, and in, in the Soviet kind of um, the geography of, of the Soviet Union, the economic geography, regions were supposed to specialize in different ways. So, you know, Siberia had its products, Central Asia had its products. And so in the same way, Central Asia is supposed to provide cotton. And that is what drives these these larger and larger uh, projects in the region because this is a planned economy and the plan is always being ratcheted up. So you're always expected to produce more and more and more and more. And it doesn't matter what end that goes to. Uh, people are just supposed to fulfill the plan. And so what you see in the late Soviet period is more and more water being diverted to grow more and more cotton. But then as there's less and less water, the cotton becomes harder and harder to grow. It becomes harder and harder for Central Asian leaders to produce that cotton in order to fulfill the plan. And so interestingly, this is where the resources of Siberia then come into play again. And I know Chris has written about this as well and done research on it. So Chris, if you want to jump in here at all, just let me know. Uh, but there's a there's a plan that keeps cropping up over and over and over again in the late Soviet period until it's finally under Gorbachev uh, taken off the table in 1986. But this is a plan to divert uh, the water resources of Siberia, so the the great um, water-filled 
rivers of Siberia flow northward into the Arctic Sea, and that is not where the water is needed. The water is needed in the dry southern parts of the Soviet Union. So there's this idea, hey, you know, Siberia has all this water. Why can't it give some of that water to Central Asia? But this is also around the time that people are becoming more and more environmentally conscious. This is when you have, you know, the 70s is when you have people at Baikal protesting the paper mill that Chris talked about. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of uh, Siberians who are really not happy about the idea of, of diverting this water. Siberia is also already kind of marshy and swampy, and they point out that this would flood huge areas uh, that would no longer be usable. It would destroy monuments of Russian culture, uh, Russian villages, the village prose writers um, of the 1970s that some of you may be familiar with were, were um, very outspoken against these projects. And, you know, that's probably part of the reason that that they were taken off the table in the 1980s. But I think, you know, I, I think you can see a lot of continuity between <laughs> those projects already starting back in the 19th century, those imperial projects, um, to the kind of state that, that Central Asia found itself in in the late Soviet period. And, and the legacies continue to affect Central Asia today. So cotton still plays a, an enormous role in um the economies of, of several of the Central Asian countries, um, and you know the uh, relationship between Central Asia and Russia today is is a kind of uh, a post-colonial one in some ways. Chris, I don't, I don't know if you you would like to tell us about this this. Well, I, I think it's a crazy idea, but to divert rivers from <laughs> that flow north and divert them south, like what was the, all of this about? Oh well, Maya did a very good job of me mentioning a lot of things. Just to give you a couple of terms, and Maya's working on this more than I am right now, so I'd like to defer to her again. Sibaral uh, or Northern Waters South, uh, those are two terms you could use. But yes, one of these, uh, Maya mentioned gigantomania earlier, this kind of fits the bill of that, uh, using a lot of technologies, including one actual tactical nuclear explosion in 1971 as an experiment to divert uh, northern flowing Siberian rivers, the Ob, Irtysh, uh, Liana, uh, Yenisei, and others uh, to the south to irrigate Central Asia for all that cotton. And it seems like a completely farcical and fantastical plan. And as Maya very rightly mentioned, I'm glad she put, put this out there, that the plan was abandoned in the late 80s with uh, Piotr Storok and Glasnost. Uh, however, and Maya, again, could probably speak about this more. There was a book called Vada i Mir that was published about almost 15 years ago now by the now formerly disgraced former mayor of Moscow, Yuri Lushkov, that basically says this is one of great Russia's great uh, divinely inspired inspired legacies is to provide water to the uh, benighted, not his word, um, parched arid steppe of Central Asia. And this is the new oil that Russia doesn't need to sell oil anymore because other places have it, but we've got water and they don't. And the subtext of that book, which is very poorly written, and if you know Lushkov, it's not a surprise, uh, is that um, this is a resource that willing to pay us, i.e. Russia, a lot for. All we have to do all is to to divert these rivers, which as Maya very accurately said, would have been even an attempt to this extremely damaging, a devastating, catastrophic, whatever word you want to use to the environment. That's what people who haven't been to Siberia, Siberia don't realize, as Maya says, how swampy it is. Um, people think of these frozen tundra wastes, which are of course part of Siberia, but a lot of it is marsh. And I always tell my students the worst season in Siberia, it's not the winter, it's summer. 
because of the bugs. If you've ever been to Alaska in the summer, the black flies, it's, it's absolutely horrible. You don't want to be in those places. And it's a, a plan that has so many, um, you know, problematic ideas. But the fact that it's even being discussed or was until fairly recently is troubling. And again, to maybe bring China in too much, China is not doing something quite so grandiose, but they are doing a, a version of river redirection. And it's already happened. Uh, the Three Gorges Dam is just the beginning of a major redirection of water, much of which you would have gone or still does for now, uh, or some of it anyway, into Russia and Kazakhstan that's being reversed and sent back into the populated areas of China, a big desert city essentially today. It needs a lot of water. Its population is growing, even though the Chinese government wants to stop it. So in some ways, we could argue that China is, with some attenuation, appropriating some of these fantastical and outlandish plans in the real world. And that I think is probably even more troubling than talking about crazy books about redirecting Siberian rivers uh, is the fact that China is doing this very thing and it's causing a lot of tension with both Kazakhstan and Russia in the process. I mean, Chris raised, yeah, so many important points there. And yeah, that book by Lushkov, you know, calling on Putin to, to start selling that Siberian water to Central Asia. It's just so galling, you know, <laughs> no, once you, when you know the history. Um, and, and yes, that, that Northern River's or northern northern waters south that I forget what the China um, project is called, but yeah, I think that for me just reminds me of kind of the dangers of you, you mentioned the Anthropocene earlier, Sean, you know, and and I think the Anthropocene as a kind of new geological epoch in which uh, human beings have you know um, have. Uh, influenced the earth in, in a way that that we can we can even you know see in in the geology right that we've had such an imprint on uh, on our planet in recent years that that this deserves to be called an entirely uh, new geological era um there's also you know so that's often told as a story of of, of degradation um of of environmental disaster um, but there's also kind of this notion this is something that um Tim Lacane has has warned about of a kind of good Anthropocene, uh, where you know human beings also have the the kinds of of abilities and powers that they never had before. We have new technologies that we've never had before, um, and so you know, yeah, we might be creating problems, but we can also fix those problems. That there are technological fixes for everything. And so we might think, oh, yeah, these projects are crazy, right? And with our kind of new environmental awarenesses and our understandings of, of climate change and the, the destruction that we've caused on the planet already, like, we're surely going to scale back, right? We're going to stop doing those those big kinds of crazy projects. But I think in some ways, you know, people think that these projects are more appealing than ever. So, you know, okay, there's climate change, but we can actually change the climate, <laughs> right? Um, we can just go up there in the clouds and, <laughs> and actually change change our weather um, or that, you know, yeah, we've, we've created the, these problems where, you know, where there was water, there isn't any water anymore, but we can, we can bring it from somewhere else. We can just, we can come up with something um, for it, for every problem that we've caused. There's a kind of technological fix and, and um, Lacane and, and others have warned that this is a really dangerous way of thinking um, because it's, it's not sustainable. Right. Carbon capture, the idea of sucking carbon dioxide out of the air. Yep. Sorry sucking carbon out of the atmosphere yeah putting putting it in abandoned mines i mean that's a big thing in this country you know right we're going to suck the carbon 
carbon out and stick it into old coal mines. I mean, that technology is very energy intensive for one and whether it actually would work and is feasible is another, but you're right, we can fix it. It's the Bob the Builder idea toward um, you know, the environment that we've made these problems, we can fix it. That's what the Chinese government believes. And you know, they're the most polluting country in the world by many estimates, but they're also you know, the leader in green technology. They've basically created a single market for wind turbines and many other things that they alone can produce in the economy of scale. This actually, your mention of green energy, uh, one of the people in the audience asks about energy. How does energy fit into this? Um, he writes, I think the lake, I think the Baikal region, it's maybe more significant with the Soviet showcase projects of the Angara hydroelectric dams, uh, especially the Bratsk uh, hydroelectric station. Is there such a thing? Uh, is there a, a, a conversation in both in, in Siberia, but also in, in Central Asia about developing some kind of renewable energy, even in the, in the Soviet period or even today that you know of, Chris? To be honest, I can't say. I know much about that. Uh, Bratsk Station, of course, was immortalized by Yevgeny Yevtushenko, and um, that is a major source of some pride and some concern today, uh, some as a project that uh, was one of the first great hydroelectric projects. And of course, the environmental damage of that is still being understood. Uh, the Angara um, that goes through Irkutsk is heavily polluted. In fact, by some estimates, it's the most polluted river in all of Russia. Uh, and that is something that um, civil society, what's left of it in Russia, uh, is very concerned with. And particularly in Siberia, when you live in a place where you're drinking this contaminated water, uh, and of course it's not unique to Siberia, but I, I would say that, um, uh, I can't say that everyone who is non-NGO person or a non-governmental actor is against these mega projects even today. I think that would be unfair. Uh, but to say that everyone believes that they're positive is also an oversimplification. So I think just like everything we've talked about today, there's nuance here, uh, even when it comes to the big questions that seemingly are obvious in their response that we have to be aware of. Anyway, Maya, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, energy is certainly a, a really important issue in Central Asia, has been since the collapse of the Soviet Union, because Central Asia was a, a unified region. Um, energetically speaking, there was a, a unified energy grid uh, among the, the Central Asian republics in the Soviet period. And so when the Soviet Union collapsed and these became independent republics, all of a sudden they had to renegotiate uh, the use of, of resources. So, you know, these transboundary uh, water resources, uh, but also uh some of the downstream nations uh, like Kazakhstan, um, Turkmenistan have oil and gas, uh, whereas the upstream nations like Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, they have the water. Uh, and of course, water and oil, at least right now, as Chris has pointed out, water and, and water is you know, probably going to be sold and traded um, like oil in the future. We're already getting to that point, um, but they don't have the same market value at the moment. So there's, you know, there's the, the questions of energy have um, been been tense. There's been conflict around uh, the kind of uneven distribution of resources, uh, the building of, of hydroelectric dams uh, upstream in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan has allowed those countries uh, to, you know, uh, 
they, they have these reservoirs now and they're supposed to release water downstream for agriculture uh, in Kazakhstan and, and Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. But uh, there have been years where they've actually, you know, tr withheld that water to um, be more energy independent to create hydroelectricity uh, for their own countries, which has, of course, you know, created a lot of anger in the downstream countries. Um, people at various points have predicted, you know, uh, armed conflict over these resources. That hasn't happened yet. There has been, um, you know, a, a fair amount of, of cooperation, uh, but there are these these periodic tensions. And the fact is that dams are still uh, popular uh, in these these upstream countries. Um, the Rogun Dam in uh, Tajikistan is uh, finally being built. This has been on the books for for decades, um, and so uh, you know, finding um, the cash for it has been difficult. Uh, Tajik citizens have have actually been uh, basically forced to to buy shares, I believe, in the dam to um, to to help pay for it themselves. Um, but I think this is going to be the world's highest dam when it is built. So, um, so there's still a lot of enthusiasm for these older kinds of, of energy. I haven't seen a lot about renewable energy, but there may be people um, here who know more. So I'd be happy to hear from them. Real quick about the attitude toward climate change among Russians is not universally negative. Um, and there are some points to be made at the risk of incurring the wrath of our listeners. Uh, climate change, particularly in Siberia, I'm not saying it's all positive, not even close, and I personally feel it's a disaster everywhere in the world, but uh, Russia sees opportunity in climate change that other countries see disaster, uh, and there are going to be areas of Russia, particularly in the far north and east, that are going to be inhabitable more than they are right now. They already are. Uh, this northern passage uh, that uh, not just Russia, but countries like Canada are asserting is a major, major geopolitical advantage that Russia will enjoy, especially as it's growing its navy. Uh, the second fastest growing navy in the world after China's is Russia's, uh, especially blue water. Uh, and uh, this is something that I think, again, to, uh, to simplify things uh, much too much, is to say that I think your average Siberian, perhaps, if you were to ask him or her, might have a, a mixed opinion on climate change, not all negative. Uh, and that's something that we in academe, I think, sometimes get a little uh, self-confident about, is that climate change is completely bad. Uh, that may be well true for the globe as a whole, but in certain areas, especially in arts, uh, areas of Russia that are economically depressed, like Siberia is, climate change may not necessarily be a bad thing. Yeah, this is, I'm assuming you're referencing, there was an, an article in the New York Times about this very issue several weeks ago that was quite interesting and, and, and shocking <laughs> from the attitude of wealth for the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, this isn't good, but yeah. I, I Right, too bad, but uh, we're taking Yeah, you No, know, I, I, I yeah. thought that was a, a really interesting uh, article illuminating those issues that, of course, I had no idea about. Um, one last question, then I'll open things up to the chat. You know, and I'm sure both of you had this this dilemma in your career uh, as in teaching. But you know, how do you both put the environmental history of Russia into your general narrative of Russian history? Right, because. You know, if you look at the textbooks out there, and now I, I, I know there's a, a kind of textbook of environmental history of Russia, but put that aside, that's an outlier. But most textbooks about Russia are highly political history, maybe some social history. You know, it's getting a bit better in this, but how do you put uh, the, where do you put the environment in your narrative, uh, Chris? 
Well, uh, to do engage in some samkritika, I think even in my own scholarship, it's not having the place or hasn't had the place of prominence that it needs to. Um, I think in, in the field of environmental studies, we run the risk of trying to beat people over the head who aren't really on board that how important environmental history is by saying, look, shouldn't you know better? Uh, and simply saying, you know, you should be understanding and studying this because it's self-evident. Um, but I think a better way of doing it is to show that the environment impacts all of history. Uh, the entire history of the world, political, economic, cultural, social, you name it, all the myriad types of history, all are in some lesser or more ways influenced by the environment. And that I think to many of us here, that's self-evident, but that's something that we need to tease out. Um, I think for too long, environmental studies, and I, I speak more for the Russia side of things, as a bit, and there are those environmental historians of Russia and the former Soviet Union over there, and then there's everybody else. I've gotten this comment from non-environmental historians saying, oh, you're one of them. You're one of those people that writes just about those things. And I think that reflects a, a fault of us as environmental historians of the region that we need to bring a much more uh, wider perspective. And Maya's done a really good uh, job today and in her scholarship of mentioning comparative scholarship. That's one of the ways we can do that. Isn't just saying, hey, look, uh, this is just Russia and leave it at that. But for example, some of the scholarship I'm planning on working on is going to mention the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority here in the southern United States, very impactful and in some ways a lot of parallels with what's going on and has gone on in Russia. So I think the, the burden is on us as environmental historians to kind of prove our case, even though, as I say, it's self-evident, uh, but there, there, there's more convincing to be done. And I think if we can do that, maybe a bit of this marginalization, if I can use that word, that I, I and personally anyway perceive from time to time could be remedied. Uh, it's obvious that environmental concerns are much more in the media today, whether that's true in non-environmental historiography is a much deeper question. And Maya, you you have a you have a bit of a, a double burden because you already have the challenge of incorporating Central Asia <laughs> into a narrative. Uh, so how how do you meet that challenge? Well, I think yeah, like Chris, I also have to do a little a little self criticism here because I think you know I'm. I'm not much better at it than than others where, you know, and often Central Asia will get marginalized to a week on Central Asia, or, you know, or maybe a class or maybe half a class, Central Asia and the Caucasus, right? Um, and, and I think it's hard to, to avoid um, environmental determinism, uh, you know, to kind of say, well, because of Russian geography, right, Russia was bound to be this way that it was sort of fated to develop in the way that it did. On the other hand, I mean, there are important things to understand about Russia's geography, about its, you know, very northerly position in the world. I mean, Russian peasants did have difficulty, you know, eking out more than just kind of a subsistence living from the land with, you know, such a short growing season. That is important. And it does explain why the Russian Empire was interested in advancing its borders southward um, and why a place like Central Asia did become seen as a kind of safety valve for these overcrowded Black Earth regions in the late 19th and, and early 20th centuries because the climate was much uh, more forgiving um, and did really appeal to a lot of people, even though, as I've said, you know, unfortunately, irrigation is not just about adding water to dry land <laughs> and then growing your crops. It's actually extremely difficult. And, you know, Chris had mentioned 
this perception that of empty land. Um, again, yeah, I mean, these lands were not empty. They were much of the, the arable land or the land that was, was good for agriculture was already being used. And nomadic people were using the steppe regions in a way that is, is you know, much more kind of in harmony with the environment than than large scale agricultural farms would be um so you know i think there there are lots of ways in which that geography is important rivers rivers were uh, Russia's roads before uh, the railroads, you know, um, and so understanding that that geography and, um, you know, does help to explain Russian history. I think, you know, lots of people also learn about Russia, Russia's search for warm water ports. Chris was talking about climate change and that that passage um, through the Arctic that, you know, was something that, that Russians have wanted for <laughs> centuries, right? So, um, yeah, I think it's it's a fine balance. And I think I probably do too much of kind of setting that up at the beginning and then moving on to the social and cultural history that we're in political history that we're all more used to, to teaching. Um, but, uh, but it, but it does matter. Um, well, I, I really like the comparative approach because it, 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 it de-exoticizes, you know, or, you know, gets rid of the exceptionalism that we tend to ascribe to Russia and it to say, well, they're part of these global trends and it's just different, <laughs> um, right? They're, you know, what's happening? I mean, I've learned this just by talking to people, interviewing people about, say, indigenous populations in Russia compared to the United States. I mean, I think that looking at the similar types of, like, you know, logics and treatments, but in different contexts with different results sometimes is really illuminating to to get, a rid, get away from that exceptionalism that we tend to ascribe to some of these things. Here's another actually really good question um, that I one can find in, in a lot of places when it comes to the history of Russia and the USSR. Um, the person writes, I find that a lot of the literature on environmentalism in the USSR is limited to listing overexploited places and catastrophes. Any idea for moving beyond that? Oh, great question. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a problem in the field of environmental history as a whole, I would say. There's a lot of this kind of disaster history and a lot of a lot of these declensionist narratives. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, th I think we've moved away from one of the first works uh, in the early post-Soviet period to um, draw attention to the, the pollution and the environmental problems of the Soviet Union was uh, Feshbach and Friendly's ecocide in the USSR. And so, of course, I think that has kind of colored our, our perception of the environment in that part of the world. And, and it was bad. I mean, you, you know, there is a lot of uh, environmental devastation <laughs> in these places. And um, it's worth talking about something we didn't really mention so far, um, but that's, that's sort of come up a little bit is that, um, you know, in the late Soviet period, uh, people did start to mobilize around environmental issues. And this was particularly in the non-Russian parts of the Soviet Union. Uh, so um, Jane Dawson, a political scientist, wrote a book called Eco-Nationalism, uh, mainly focused on the, the Baltics and Russia, um, but about environmental movements under Gorbachev. So this was really when kind of, you know, 
political movements first became really possible, open political movements in the Soviet Union. And many of these coalesced around environmental issues uh, in Central Asia. Um, this was the nuclear testing site in Kazakhstan. Um, so, yeah, uh, Semey or uh, Semipalatinsk. And, uh, and also around the Aral Sea. So you had um, most, these were often elite-led movements. Uh, writers were involved in a lot of these. Uh, so uh, Chinggis Aitmatov in Central Asia and Ojas Suleimenov were leaders of these, um, these political movements that were also environmental. In the, in the case of Central Asia, they couldn't talk about uh, cotton uh, because Central Asia was still so dependent on cotton, but they were able to kind of indirectly through highlighting the plight of the Aral Sea, uh, draw attention to that cotton monoculture um, and the, the legacies that it had left on the Central Asian environment. So I think, you know, there, there is a, a desire to kind of to to do some justice to these these narratives and, and to the ways in which people have suffered. Um, but I absolutely agree that these are not the only stories that we can tell or that we should tell. Um, and I, uh, Sean, at the beginning of this, mentioned this new project that I'm doing on kumis, uh, this fermented mare's milk that was traditionally prepared by the nomadic peoples of Eurasia. Um, and I've been using that as a way to get into some kinds of different environmental issues that are not only about degradation, although I will say um, the steppes have suffered a lot uh, in in the um, 20th century, just like the, again, to use a comparative example, the prairies um, and the plains in the United States being plowed up for agriculture. Um, so there is also a story about you know, steppe devastation there. But I'm, I'm hoping to, um, to be able to use this uh, this idea of uh, kumis as this very particularly kind of healthy uh, substance. Uh, people would go to the steppes and they would uh, drink kumis made from the, the mares who had fed on the grasses of the Eurasian steppes and they would breathe the fresh steppe air and they would be cured of tuberculosis and other kinds of ailments. And so um, I hopefully have an article coming out soon that, that's going to be about you know uh, the perceptions of the steps as a particularly uh, kind of healthy environment, as a unique environment. So, I mean, are steps the same as, as prairies, um, or is the, are the Eurasian steps kind of their their own unique uh, biome? <laughs> Chris is, get, is getting into kind of the unique um nature of, of Baikal, the Nerpa, I don't think is found anywhere else in the world, right? That's an endemic species of Baikal. So there are, there are certainly other stories we can tell, but yes, I think we've been slow at, in telling them, so. Yeah, I will admit that's a fair criticism, the Chernobylization of environmental historiography on the Soviet Union. Um, but Maya has made a lot of good points. Uh, speaking of Baikal, um, I, I get to go back to something I mentioned earlier, this bottling of Baikal water is supposed to be, it doesn't say this, but it's supposed to have kind of healing properties. And uh, one thing I'll never forget, the very first time I went to Russia, this was not in the Baikal region, but there was this bottled water called Sviatoy Stochnik, you know, Saint Springs. And it was uh, clean water blessed by some patriarch or somebody, I don't know who it was, but it was supposed to have healing properties, you know, very non-FDA compliant. 
But nature, and again, this isn't uniquely Russian or, or any culture, but has healing properties as well as destructive ones. And Baikal, and you know, of course, it fa falls into this narrative of degradation, but also as a place of healing. Uh, going back to this comments about spirituality I made, I heard so many times when I was there that this place will make you whole. This will cure your ails uh, physically and mentally, not like a Lord's or a place like that, but you'll feel better after you visited here. And this is a real thing. And, you know, honestly, I, I, I kind of felt that way. Maybe I'd been preconditioned, but uh, uh, environmental history doesn't have to be all be about disasters. And that ecocide in the USSR, when Maya said that, I smiled. That was one of the first books I read as an undergraduate. And it does color your perception. Uh, and frankly, you know, uh, books like that, which was a, a pop book, it wasn't, I think it was basic books or somebody who published it, it wasn't an academic press there. It's designed to sell and, you know, kind of regular old people feeling okay about the environment. No one really cares about that in a lot of ways and doesn't mean we shouldn't, but um, we do need to move away from this disaster, but there's just so many of them. And one of the rejoinders I would give is that all of this former Soviet Union has been overexploited to one degree or another. There's in a single place anywhere in the former Soviet Union that in direct or indirect ways hasn't been unique to the former Soviet Union. But we need to move on to a, a story of both humans and we've talked about this earlier, non-human actors. And as Maya and I think you, Sean, as well said, that's really hard to do, to give voice uh, adequately and fairly to non-human actors, both in terms of sources and being as free of bias as we can as historians is very problematic. But that's a big part of the story. And we don't have to just uh, remain sequestered in this um, dystopian, uh, destructivist uh, narrative. We can, we can move on. Can I, can I just add, I think that maybe one way around this problem, it doesn't, doesn't take the focus away from <laughs> disaster and degradation, but comparative histories um, could, could be a way to, to kind of address this problem because uh, we need to demonstrate that the Soviet Union is not alone um, in, you know, the, the kinds of, of environmental degradation and, and devastation it caused. Maybe the scale is, is greater um, in, in, you know, some ways or in some cases. Um, but certainly, again, as I said, you know, living in the American West, um, it's a completely unsustainable uh, life. It's a completely un unsustainable way in which we've developed these these places where we live. These places should not support as many people as they do. We're draining uh, the Ogallala Aquifer. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not using uh, water in the ways that we should. You know, a lot of, um, of water is going to waste. People in California don't have access to clean drinking water. So this is not just a story about, you know, far away over there and that bad communist government and all the things they did. You know, the U.S. government has done so many things as well. Um, Kate Brown's work Plutopia, I think, is a really great example of comparative history, uh, looking at um, the nuclear programs in the Soviet Union and in the United States. And, you know, while I think um, Hanford in eastern Washington comes across looking somewhat better <laughs> than the, the kinds of nuclear disasters and cover-ups um, in the Soviet Union, there's a lot of really shocking history in there that I think we as Americans, we don't know about, we don't learn about, um, maybe we don't want to know about. Uh, I have a friend who grew, grew up in the that Tri-Cities area and had cancer at age 21. And, you know, probably as a result of, of um, the, you know, nuclear poisoning there. Um, but it's it's a lot easier for us to just think like, oh, you know, that's that's a problem that we don't really have. So I think co more compare if we're going to if we're going to write histories of disasters, uh, make sure that they're in comparative context. So it doesn't seem like something that's just uniquely Russian or Soviet. That was Maya Peterson and Christopher Ward. 
Maya Peterson is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Her research and teaching interests include Russian and Central Asian history, as well as the history of the environment, science, technology, and medicine. She's the author of Pipe Dreams, Water and Empire in Central Asia's Aral Sea Basin, published by Cambridge University Press. Christopher Ward is a professor of history at Clayton State University. He's the author of a number of publications, most notably Brezhnev's Folly, The Building of Bam and Late Soviet Socialism, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press, and co-author of Russia, A Historical Introduction from Kiev and Rus to the Present, published by Westview Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage, and you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud. Or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Yeah. <laughs>